situation to happen. I tell the story through three generations of one family in Tuscaloosa, and the grandfather, even though he started school the year that Brown was decided, he never intended an integrated school. And the only one in the three generations who did attend an integrated school was the mother, who was that kind of in-between generation when there was real integration. And now her own child is back in segregated schools. So I thought that was important just to lay that history out for Americans so that we can understand why we are as we are. But also, of course, hoping that if people are knowledgeable that this is intentional in in many ways, that this segregation is not accidental, because I think we've also let ourselves off the hook as a society because we believe in the inevitability of all of this or that it's somehow a benign process that leads to schools being 99% black and Latino. I wanted to show very clearly that that is not and that reporters can dig in their own communities and look at the policy decisions that have led to the resegregation. And thirdly, on a very small scale, in Tuscaloosa, I knew there had long been people who believed that deals had been made but could never prove it. And in Tuscaloosa, there are conversations that have not happened before. There's proof that the community didn't have before. And as that community is getting ready to redistrict its schools yet again, the conversation there is very different. They know that someone's watching, and the people who want more equity now feel like they have the power to push for it. That was reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones speaking with Counterspin's Peter Hart five years ago this month. The series, Segregation Now, can still be found at ProPublica.org. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on FAIR's website, fair.org. That's also the place to sign up for our newsletter, Extra. The show's engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. You're listening to KBOO Portland. Up next, Rising Up Sonali. Alyssa Pariah, your friendly neighborhood agitator, the host of The Struggle, every Friday from 7 to 8 p.m., Listen to KBU Community Radio, 90.7 FM, and online at KBU.FM. The struggle is where organizers and activists doing good in the community come to discuss their work, to get you to support them, maybe even join them. Remember the struggle. Every Friday, 7 to 8 p.m., KBU Community Radio. KABU is a proud co-sponsor of the Portland Folk Music Society 2018-19 concert season. The season finale features singer-songwriter Dave Stamey performing songs of the American West. That's Dave Stamey on Friday, May 17th at the Reedwood Friends Church at 2901 Southeast Steel Street in Portland. Doors at 7, concert 7.30 p.m. Cowboy poet Tom Swearingen will open and the Portland Folk Music Society Concert Committee will announce the 2019-20 season. 
For more information, go to kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Sweetgrass County Line Down where the Everstone flows Sunlit KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. In today's news headlines, the House of Representatives on Friday passed a major disaster relief bill approving $17 billion to states around the nation including California, Hawaii, Alaska, and states in the Midwest and South. The funding will address damage from major storms and hurricanes, wildfires, and more. Included in the bill is $600 million for nutrition assistance for Puerto Rico's residents impacted by Hurricane Maria, which President Donald Trump has opposed and repeatedly lied about. Trump also wanted $4.5 billion in emergency funding for his border wall. But Friday's bill passed with 34 Republicans joining Democrats. The House passed another version of the same bill in January, but the Senate did not take a vote on that bill. The Pentagon has additionally approved a transfer of $1.5 billion from its defense budget to fund Trump's border wall with Mexico. The funds are drawn from a number of projects, including Afghan security forces, in their fight against the Taliban. And Trump on Thursday formally nominated Acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan to his permanent position. The former Boeing executive faces a contentious Senate confirmation hearing. The House on Thursday also passed a bill to protect the Affordable Care Act from the Trump administration. The bill prevents the federal government from issuing waivers to states that want to avoid the law. The Democrat-controlled House will vote on seven more bills related to President Obama's signature health care law next week. The Trump administration has pledged to repeal Obamacare in its entirety and replace it with an as-yet-unknown law. President Trump has made good on his promise to raise tariffs on Chinese imports, as talks between trade representatives from China and the U.S. failed to come to agreement. About $200 billion worth of Chinese goods will now see tariffs raised from 10% to 25%. Trump also took steps to potentially impose tariffs on all Chinese goods coming into the U.S., China responded, saying it would be forced to take the, quote, necessary countermeasures, but did not specify what those were. Speaking at the White House on Thursday, Trump tried to justify the tariffs. Our country can take in $120 billion a year in tariffs, paid for mostly by China, by the way, not by us. A lot of people try and steer it in a different direction. It's really paid, ultimately, it's paid for by, largely by China. And business Trump remarking on tariffs on China, critics say that the cost of the tariffs will fall largely on Americans. President Trump's lawyer Rudy Giuliani has said he plans to travel to the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, shortly to meet with the newly elected Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. According to The New York Times, Giuliani will urge Zelensky to, quote, pursue inquiries 
that allies of the White House contend could yield new information about two matters of intense interest to Mr. Trump. The issues are the origins of the 2016 special counsel investigation into Trump and what role Joe Biden's son played in a Ukrainian-owned gas company. The Times remarked that, quote, Mr. Giuliani's plan creates the remarkable scene of a lawyer for the president of the United States pressing a foreign government to pursue investigations that Mr. Trump's allies hope could help him in his re-election campaign. And it comes after Mr. Trump spent more than half of his term facing questions about whether his 2016 campaign conspired with a foreign power. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has planned a trip to Russia next week to meet with President Vladimir Putin. It will be the first time Pompeo travels there as State Secretary, and among the issues on his agenda are U.S.-Russia relations on Venezuela and Iran, as well as arms control, Russia's battle in Ukraine, and nuclear weapons-related negotiations with North Korea. Apparently, Pompeo and Putin also intend to discuss U.S. election interference efforts originating from Russia. And President Trump on Thursday said that former State Secretary John Kerry should face prosecution for discussing details of the U.S.-Iran nuclear deal with Iranian officials after he left office. On the same day, Trump invited Iranian leaders to, quote, call me. I'd like to see with Iran. I'd like to see them call me. You know, John Kerry speaks to him a lot. John Kerry tells them not to call. That's a violation of the Logan Act. And frankly, he should be prosecuted on that. But... My people don't want to do anything that's... Only the Democrats do that kind of stuff, you know? If it were the opposite way, they'd prosecute him under the Logan Act. But John Kerry violated the Logan Act. He's talking to Iran and has been, has many meetings and many phone calls, and he's telling them what to do. That is a total violation of the Logan Act. Iran responded saying there will be no negotiations with America. A new Reuters poll has found increased support among Americans for impeaching Trump. 45% of Americans now want Trump impeached, which is a five-point increase from a month ago. However, half of all respondents said that the congressional inquiries into Trump were interfering with the business of running the government. According to Reuters, the poll, quote, did not make clear whether investigation-fatigued Americans wanted House of Representatives Democrats to pull back on their probes or press forward aggressively and just get impeachment over with. State lawmakers in Alabama postponed a vote on a controversial bill that would have banned almost all abortions and criminalized doctors who performed them. The state Senate moved to resume voting next Tuesday after a battle broke out over how far the ban should go. There was no motion. There was no motion. He made a motion. He didn't even make a motion, Mr. President. He did not make a motion. He made a motion. He made a motion to table. He made a motion to table. Heck no. He didn't even make a motion. Motion. He did not make a motion. He made a motion to table. What was the motion made? The, the motion. No motion was made. You just excuse me, Senator Chambliss. No you're recognized. I don't care what the chair is about. Thank you, Mr. He no. did not make a motion. Anti-abortionists plan for the Alabama bill to be challenged all the way to the Supreme Court, where they hope for an outcome that curtails women's right to control their own bodies. Meanwhile, in Georgia, where Republican Governor Brian Kemp just signed a draconian abortion bill into law, four film production companies announced they would boycott the state until the law was overturned. Georgia has become a popular production destination for some film and television projects. In immigration news, the Housing and Urban Development Department has announced that as part of its implementation of the Trump administration's attack on immigrants, 
It would be evicting 55,000 children and undocumented families from public housing. HUD Secretary Ben Carson announced the proposed rule on Friday, saying that it is intended to, quote, make certain our scarce public resources help those who are legally entitled to it. But the law already prohibits undocumented immigrants from accessing subsidized housing, but it does allow mixed-status families to occupy the housing. Under the leadership of Trump's virulently anti-immigrant advisor, Stephen Miller, that rule is being changed so that all household members are required to have legal status. This means that U.S. citizen children of undocumented parents will likely be evicted. Also on immigration, news emerged that dozens of Border Patrol agents are being trained to conduct asylum interviews of those seeking refuge at the border as part of a pilot program. Critics say it is highly inappropriate for those in immigration enforcement capacity to conduct such interviews. And finally, whistleblower and activist Chelsea Manning has been released from jail after being held for more than two months for contempt of court after she refused to testify against WikiLeaks's Julian Assange. But Manning was just subpoenaed again as she was released and could likely face more jail time. And that does it for our news headlines today. We'll be back with the rest of the show after this. KPFK Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo made a surprise visit to Baghdad, Iraq on Tuesday. There he met with Iraqi Prime Minister Adel Abdul Mahdi and reportedly discussed the U.S.'s aggressive posture toward Iran. Iraq didn't bite, with the Prime Minister saying in a statement, Iraq is building its relationships with all on the basis of putting Iraq's interests first, and that the nation would continue to work with, quote, friends and neighbors, including neighboring Iran. The Trump administration's foreign policy in the Middle East appears to be cohering around isolating and provoking Iran. Many worry that the fears of war with Iran that have been brewing for years, especially under Republican administrations, might be realized under Trump. Juan Cole is my guest. He is the Richard P. Mitchell Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan. He's written several books, including The New Arabs, How the Wired and Global Youth of the Middle East is Transforming It, and Engaging the Muslim World. He has a column at truthdig.com. His blog, Informed Comment, can be found at juancole.com. And you can actually watch the interview we did with him about his latest book, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires, on our website, risingupwithsonali.com. Welcome back, Juan. 
Thank you, Sonali. So you have written about Pompeo's trip to um, Iraq on your blog. Uh, and let's talk about what it was that you can tell Pompeo intended to accomplish. The U.S. has sort of not paid much attention to Iraq lately, it seems. And so when he made the surprise trip, it seems as though what he was trying to do was get Iraq to join the U.S. to be among this coalition of nations that's isolating Iran. Is that accurate? Sure. Well, that's one of the overarching goals of Pompeo's trip. I think more immediately, he is convinced uh, that he has uh, intelligence uh, that showed uh, an Iranian or an Iranian proxy a plan to attack U.S. troops uh, somewhere in the Gulf region. Uh, and I think part of the reason that uh, Pompeo went to Baghdad was to get reassurances from uh, uh, the uh, Prime Minister, uh, Adel Abdel Mahdi, uh, that uh, the Iraqi army would intervene to protect the some 5,000 U.S. troops that are still in that country, uh, aiding in the mopping up operations against the remnants of ISIL. Now, Pompeo has said, uh, he said on Wednesday that that he did not want war with Iran, but there would be a, quote, swift and decisive U.S. response to any attack. Also, just weeks earlier, the U.S. deemed the Iranian Revolutionary Guard as an official terrorist uh, on its official uh, terrorist watch list, which is the first time that a state-related militia has been put on that list. So that sort of uh, is part of the framing of the U.S.'s posture toward Iran, right? Well, yes, the the U.S. has adopted an increasingly uh, belligerent tone towards Iran, uh, first of all, in 2017, uh, the Trump administration breached the uh, nuclear agreement that uh, the United Nations uh, Security Council had uh, attained with Iran. Uh, and uh, that agreement had said Iran would mothball most of its nuclear enrichment uh, program, uh, some 80 percent, in return for sanctions relief. Uh, Trump uh, breached the, the, the deal and increased the sanctions on Iran, uh, making them extremely severe, even to the point of a, essentially a, a financial blockade against uh, Iran selling its petroleum in the world. And then more recently, we've had these moves to declare the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, which is essentially Iran's National Guard, uh, in addition to its uh, national army as a terrorist group, which makes no sense since terrorist groups are defined as non-state actors. Uh, Iran, in return, declared the U.S. Army uh, a terrorist group. Uh, and of course, that kind of rhetoric is concerning, and it's not impossible that uh, a pro-Iranian uh, small terrorist group might, might uh, target U.S. troops off of that declaration, uh, which may have led to the current crisis. Now, with Trump's um, undoing of the Iranian nuclear deal, which was you know, arguably the pinnacle of the Obama foreign policy legacy, uh, we uh, see that even Europe can't, you know, is having a hard time keeping that agreement in place because of these very, very strong U.S. sanctions. Did Pompeo, as far as you know, also try to rope Iraq into sanctions on Iran? Uh, 
Actually, I think it may go the other way around. In return for greater security cooperation, uh, the, the Iraqi press is reporting, and these are unsourced reports, so who knows, but the Iraqi press is reporting that Pompeo uh, dangled uh, a, an extended waiver uh, to Iraq, uh, allowing it not to uh, step up and completely cut off Iran as the United States had been insisting. Uh, so Iraq seems to have been given, given some breathing space. Uh, the Iraqi official line is they're simply not going to join in the U.S. boycott of Iran. It's, Iran is a, is a close neighbor. Uh, they're both Shiite-led states. Uh, they have warm relations. And frankly, Iraq is an economic mess in the wake of the Bush uh, uh, misadventure there. Uh, and I Iraq desperately needs Iran's uh, trade uh, and help. Uh, some provinces of Iraq actually get their electricity from uh, Iran, and, and so Iraq is not in a position uh, to cut off Iran. But on the other hand, desperately does need the United States to make sure ISIL doesn't come back and threaten Baghdad uh, for security arrangements uh, and so forth, so that uh, the, the Baghdad government is really caught in a very difficult place. So they've, I think, probably tell the Americans secretly uh, different things than what they say pr publicly about Iran. And of course, the historical framework, of course, um, for the relationship between Iraq and Iran is a brutal years-long war between those two nations that the U.S. helped to fuel. That was in part uh, the reason why Saddam Hussein was propelled into power in Iraq. And it seems as though neither Iran nor Iraq have any appetite for a repeat of anything close to that war, right? Oh, yeah. Well, no, there, there's a, a very good and warm relations between Baghdad and uh, Tehran. One of the ironies of the Bush administration policy was that they did overthrow Saddam Hussein, who had been uh, Bush Sr.'s close ally right. in the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, and now the, the Iraqi Shiites, some 60 percent of that country, have come to power and while they don't hold exactly the same ideology as the Iranian Shiites, uh, they view Iran as as a as a sibling, as as a, a very close uh, and warm neighbor, uh, and so uh, they are uh, completely uninterested in uh, intentions with Iran, and indeed uh, are seeking better economic relations, not worse. Uh, so the the Trump administration uh, dream uh, that it can line up Iraq against Iran, and even there's been talk in the Trump administration of trying to um, get the relations between Baghdad and Riyadh with Saudi Arabia uh, better. Uh, that, that's just a pipe dream. It's it's highly unlikely to happen, and it's a result of U.S. policy that the Shiites now do control Iraq. Now, some uh, there's been a lot of uh, evidence to suggest that the Trump's policies on Iran are driven by his hawkish national security advisor John Bolton, who's basically had a you know this idea that that attacking Iran is a centerpiece of of any important U.S. foreign policy. Is Bolton behind what you think is happening with the U.S. and Iran? I think that there's a big split in this administration on many foreign policy issues between Trump himself uh, and uh, the more uh, pro-Trump uh, elements of his government and the old national security 
apparatus uh, that uh, people like Bolton and uh, Pompeo are part of. Uh, and so uh, I think Trump sees Iran as a problem somewhat like China. That is to say, here's a country from Trump's point of view somehow taking advantage of us. Um, Trump lives in a fantasy world, so it's, I'm not saying that this is true. It's how he sees things. Uh, and uh, and gotten a, a, a free ride, a, a much better deal from us uh, than it deserved, and, and we're, our interests are being injured as a result. Uh, let's, uh, let's clobber them uh, with trade sanctions until they cry uncle. So uh, we, we uh, you know, uh, let I Iran into Syria and uh, to expand its geopolitical reach and uh, supporting Hezbollah against uh, Israel. And, and, uh, and the nuclear deal just didn't deal with that expansion of Iran's uh, geopolitical scope. Uh, and so Trump wants to put Iran uh, in a box, uh, wants to cut it down to size. Uh, but the Bolton uh, wing of the Trump administration uh, wants regime change. Uh, it, it wants to, to, to turn the screws on Iran so hard uh, that Iran will somehow react uh, in a rash way. And then Bolton, I think there's evidence, is hoping uh, to use that as a pretext then for the U.S. actually to conduct an airstrike on Iranian soil. There are reports from the press that, that he, he tried to accomplish this last fall, but may have been thwarted by uh, a then Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis. Mattis may have resigned over this entire imbroglio, and so there's no now no permanent Secretary of Defense to stand up to Bolton. And so we may be seeing this crisis unfold in part because Bolton uh, has uh, the, the run of the roost. Now, uh, Acting Secretary of Defense Patrick Shanahan has just been formally nominated to that position by Trump. He's a former Boeing executive, and, and uh, there, he faces a lot of criticism in the Senate. He may potentially face a rocky path to confirmation, but even if he does get confirmed, uh, and even in his current position as Acting Secretary, you're suggesting that he's basically allowing Bolton and Pompeo to, to run the show. Well, I, I, you know, in, in Washington terms, uh, there are principles and non-principles. Uh, so uh, uh, there, are, there are members of the cabinet who can call a cabinet meeting, who can call for an emergency meeting. Uh, a, 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 a deputy secretary of something is not a principle. Bolton, as, as a national security advisor, is a principle. So at the moment, the way the game is played in Washington, Bolton has all the cards. Uh, what about the fact that Pompeo is now planning a trip to Russia? Uh, he just announced that he was also going to be traveling there to speak with Vladimir Putin on a number of issues, including Iran. In Syria, Russia and Iran are on opposite sides of that war, right? Uh, Russia and Iran are allies in Syria. Uh, I'm sorry, and, you're right. I'm sorry, they're on they're on the same side of that war. <laughs> yes, and and then Trump is on the other side, or or actually, not so much Trump because he has often talked about just giving Syria to Russia, uh, but uh, the national security apparatus is upset about Iran being in in Syria, and of course the Israel lobbies are upset about it, uh, in Israel itself. So. Um, uh, yes, uh, you know, I think Vladimir Putin doesn't care whether Iran is in Syria in the long term or not. He needs Iranian 
help at the moment, and therefore he's uh, running interference for Iran in Syria. But it, it's an alliance of convenience. It's not ideological. It's not you know, it's not a, a friendship necessarily between Tehran and Moscow. Uh, but it's a uh, it's it's just a, a practical matter. Iru Russia supplied heavy uh, air uh, uh, support to the uh, regime in Syria, the Bashar al-Assad regime in Damascus, to defeat the rebels. Uh, air support in and of itself is useless in taking territory. Uh, you can bomb people all you like, and it doesn't necessarily matter. You look at Vietnam, where the U.S. had enormous uh, air power superiority and still lost. So you need troops on the ground. Assad's army had largely divert, uh, deserted, and uh, you needed dedicated fighters. Uh, and so Iran asked uh, Lebanon's Hezbollah to come in on al-Assad's side. Uh, and uh, then they sent a few uh, uh, troops, mainly conscripted Afghans, uh, uh, to, to help. And so th they, they arranged for there to be a, uh, a fighting force on the ground that would actually take territory in the wake of the Russian bombing. So Putin uh, still needs that. He need, I think there's going to be still an, another big campaign in Idlib. Uh, down the road, I, I don't think there's any reason to believe that, that Russia will necessarily plump for Iran staying in Syria, but at the moment, that's the position, and he's not going to budge on that. It's a, it's a practical matter. So what about the fact that uh, the American public d isn't paying that much attention to what the foreign policy in the Middle East is and really does not have any appetite for continued war? Of course, war is happening, even if we may not be paying attention to it. You know, we're continuing to bomb Afghanistan and Syria um, and support the Saudi bombing in Yemen. But it doesn't seem as though no matter how much Bolton and Pompeo will or wish it that the American public would really want a war with Iran. The American public doesn't want a war with Iran, and Trump campaigned against the Middle East wars as having been ruinous. He, he, yeah. he campaigned against the Iraq war ex post facto, uh, and so his base, the MAGA uh, group of some one-third of our country, I think would be up in arms if Trump uh, then turned around and tried to go to war with Iran, and Trump seems to realize this. There's been reporting this uh, last week in the Washington Post that uh, uh, that that Trump is becoming nervous about the hawkishness of Bolton and Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, and feels like they're trying to involve him in these foreign adventures and that he'd much, you know, he's much more of an isolationist and would like to get out of these things. But I think Trump uh, as I said, really just wants to strong arm Iran. He, he's convinced that uh, Iran is a problem that he can solve by just uh, economic sanctions and so forth. He doesn't want a kinetic or a military involvement there. But the, the, the difficulty is what if, what if Bolton is devious enough and determined enough to get up a Gulf of Tonkin type of, uh, uh, of story uh, so that there seems to be a pretext uh, and then, then it becomes you know tr a matter of Trump's macho rhetoric. Is he really going to let the Iranians put one over him on him? Is he going to let some small Shiite group kill a U.S. soldier, and and that group is backed by Iran and and not not respond in any way? So I think the the problem is that uh, uh, Trump and and the country don't want a war. 
but a, a war can be ginned up, and we've seen wars ginned up, and the Iraq War was ginned up. So um, uh, I, I, I don't discount the possibility of, of a, a sharp turn on this issue. And I just would remind uh, viewers and listeners that, um, uh, that, that even though the U.S. public was against in, in Middle East involvement and voted for Obama twice, uh, partly on those grounds because he was winding down those wars, when ISIL arose in 2014, opinion polling uh, switched and a, a majority of Americans said that Obama had to go in and do something, which is why Obama sent five or 6,000 troops to Iraq and, uh, and, and, and resumed bombing. Uh, so uh, the, the public can be volatile on security issues. Right, and you point out in your piece that you just wrote about the Pompeo's visit to Iraq that Mike Pompeo and John Bolton are known serial dedicated liars. <laughs> so uh, certainly can't put anything past them. What about Trump's uh, recent statements on Iran on Thursday? He, you know, he said to Iran in his sort of usual um, style, "Call me." What I'd like to see with Iran is I'd like to see them call me. And of course, Iran did not respond very uh, positively to that, uh, saying there will be no negotiations with America. And I don't know what exactly Trump meant by that. I suppose his foreign policy or any of his policy statements aren't really ever to be taken seriously. Well, I think he was sincere. I, I, I think that's the way he sees the world, is, is that he's he's taken Iran down a notch. He's, he's ruined the agreement that they got. And... Uh, He's put them under severe sanctions, uh, and uh, so now it's it's their turn to to reach out to him and uh, say what kind of a deal can we can we make here? Uh, that's how he thinks the world operates. I presume that's how he did business in the real estate uh, uh, sector of New York, uh, and so uh, uh, he doesn't understand that this is ridiculous. Uh, he he thinks it's perfectly plausible that Iran will now call him. Uh, and he 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 can't uh, he can't understand that by uh, violating and and breaching the uh, U.S. agreement with Iran that was reached in 2015, he's made it impossible for the Iranians to talk with him, uh, and and also useless. So why would the Iranians spend a couple of years getting a new deal with Trump uh, when he's already proven that that the paper would be worthless and that he might just withdraw from that on a whim too? Uh, so uh, I, I think it's just the way he sees the world, and, and we're, we're, we're saddled with this uh, extremely blinkered and erratic individual at, at the helm, uh, and, and I, I fear also one that's maybe manipulable by the hawks around him. He also, by the way, said that John Kerry, this came out of the blue, John Kerry should be prosecuted for violating the Logan Act because Kerry has been apparently communicating with Iranian officials about the undoing of the nuclear peace deal, uh, the nuclear deal that he so, you know, that he worked so hard on and that, that Trump undid. And Trump sort of then pulled back saying, we wouldn't do that. It's just the Democrats that do such things. I guess he'd forgotten about Benghazi. Uh, but he, you know, he suggested that Kerry should be arrested or not arrested, prosecuted uh, for violating the Logan Act. What do you make of this? Well, the Logan Act uh, forbids uh, U.S. Uh, private individuals from conducting diplomacy abroad, sort of representing themselves as uh, as doing it on behalf of the United States. Uh, Kerry's not doing that, so the Logan Act does not apply. Uh, ironically enough, uh, soon after Trump 
made that uh, outrageous uh, set of comments about Kerry. Uh, he sent Rudy Giuliani, who's a private lawyer, uh, to to Kiev uh, to negotiate with them. Uh, so um, uh, there's a lot of hypocrisy involved here. I think what is true is that uh, John Kerry, when he was Secretary of State and uh, Foreign Minister uh, Mohammad Javad uh, Zarif of Iran, formed uh, uh, a, a bond, uh, and uh, they did conduct these negotiations uh, uh, successfully to conclusion, and it's 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 very likely that uh, Zarif and Kerry do continue to to talk uh, uh, behind the scenes. Uh, that, that Zarif wants to pick Kerry's mind about uh, the, the contemporary American political scene, but Kerry is certainly not advising Iran not to negotiate with the United States. Kerry is all about uh, negotiating, and and he proved that uh, when he got this deal. Well, I want to thank you so much, Juan, for joining us today. We'll post a link to your latest piece and informed comment uh, on your website, juancole.com, from our website. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sonali. My guest has been Juan Cole, the Richard P. Mitchell Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan. He's also a columnist at truthstick.com, and his blog-informed comment can be found at juancole.com. He's also a prolific author. I'm Sonali Kulhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Also, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sonali. From KPFK Pacifica Radio, this is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. Amazon.com has for years been positioning itself as a retailer for all things, mowing down competition wherever it can, gobbling up a lion's share of online retail sales. But what most customers of the company may not realize is that Amazon doesn't just want our business, it wants the government's business. A new report by Open the Government called Government Inc., Amazon, government security and secrecy has exposed the corporation's controversial relationship to the national security state and law enforcement apparatus. Joining us to tell all about it is Lisa Rosenberg, executive director of Open the Government. Welcome to the program, Lisa. Hi, nice to be here. So it isn't just Amazon, I understand, but a number of major tech companies like Microsoft and Google that, of course, uh, like many private, big private companies, love the idea of government contracts because they're very big contracts and they can often mean, you know, renewals and more contracts. But you focus on Amazon in this report. Why? Well, we didn't intend to focus on Amazon when we started our research, but that's just where it took us. Um, we started uncovering um, that Amazon is selling to the government not just office supplies and you know desks and computers, um, but 
really critical artificial intelligence and really critical infrastructure for billions of dollars. Um, and Amazon is particularly secretive. I'm not going to say all of any corporation is particularly open about their government contracts, um, but Amazon really has a sort of veil of secrecy, and they try to keep as much under wraps as possible. Um, but I think what's really telling and what's really important are these contracts are with the Immigration um, Enforcement Agency. They're with the Department of Defense. Uh, they're with law enforcement all over the country. Um, it's really everywhere. So, and it's Amazon just reaching into all aspects of, of what are traditionally viewed as government operations. Let's focus on one aspect of uh, the technological systems that it sells the government, and that is what you just alluded to, which is the surveillance technology aimed at immigration enforcement. There's been some coverage of this. ACLU did a really good report on the problems with recognition, which is the name of the software, but it's with a K instead of a C. Um, and, and how important a part of Amazon's relationship to the government is this particular software? And, and tell us how um, problematic it is. Well, the problem with the software that the ACLU and others um, have pointed out is that it it doesn't work. It identifies white men reasonably well, um, but people of color and women, it has a harder time identifying. So you could get picked up by this software, your picture, your face, um, because you're in a crowd or whatever it is, um, and then be linked to someone in a criminal database and be mistakenly linked to someone in a criminal criminal database. And you can imagine the implications that can have for your life. So if, in fact, um, the immigration, if, if ICE is using this, Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency is using this, then we know that Amazon is pitching ICE to use this software. Um, someone at the border could be caught up and be identified as being in a criminal database when really they are a, an asylum seeker. Um, and you can just imagine they would never get asylum in this country. They won't have the legal recourse to even find out what's going on um, and you know what's held them up. Um, but the problem is Amazon is is very, very secretive about what works and what doesn't and how well their their facial recognition software works. And I think you know our position is is it's taxpayer dollars paying for this software. It's our money paying for it. We should know if it works. We should know if it doesn't work. Um, we should know what Amazon is doing to fix it, to make sure that it's more accurate, if indeed government contractors are going to use it. Um, in addition to ISO, it's used by police departments across the country. Uh, and again, not just for immigrant surveillance, um, but um, protester surveillance, crowd surveillance. So you could be exercising your civil rights and get caught up in, um, in this facial recognition software and again, be misidentified um, you know, as someone in a criminal database. Hmm. Um, so it's it's really it's got civil liberties implications um, as well as just taxpayer you know waste implications. We're, um, if the software doesn't work, why are we spending our money on it? Some um, some so aspects we, of this reminds me a little bit of the government's no-fly list after September 11th. Um, how much of this technology is sort of black box? Uh, that is that Amazon has a proprietary. Um, software, proprietary algorithm that um, it may not reveal to the government or anyone else how it actually does this facial identification? I mean, we in our research, we discovered not only is there proprietary algorithms that are at work here, um, but that sometimes the technologists themselves at Amazon don't understand sort of all the way through how this software works. Um, 
But even more importantly, again, from a, a government oversight perspective, how is the government um, able to make sure that this software is working? There's no way they understand the technology. Um, I used to work on Capitol Hill. I'm a lawyer. I know that you know members of Congress don't understand how this technology works. Um, so you know they don't even understand Facebook. Some of these guys up there. So to try to understand how this very complicated um, technology, artificial intelligence, is being used um, is, is almost impossible. So it sounds like uh, the government is trusting Amazon to um, surveil us properly. Absolutely. And look, it's, um, it's, it's not entirely unlike the government trusting Boeing uh, that that their airplanes were safe to fly. Um, Boeing said they were, and it was only after there were tragedies that we discovered that maybe they couldn't trust Boeing. Um, so we really think that in this case, it's 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 a you know it's a similar situation. Um, the government cannot be relying on the company that is profiting from the sales of this product just to tell them that this product is okay and it's working. Uh, another uh, part of the relationship between Amazon and the government that your report covers is uh, Amazon's angling for a, a massive $10 billion 10-year contract uh, ominously called JEDI, which stands for Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure Program. I understand it's just a, a massive cloud um, uh, project. Right, and it's um, it's again using sort of cloud computing and artificial intelligence um, to help the Defense Department, to help our military with military decisions, with national national security decisions. Um, now, I don't want to scare anybody. It's not like there's sort of you know warrior robots kind of out on the front lines, um, but it it's it, its algorithms could determine where a drone strike takes place and where the next target is for, you know, for a bomb or a drone. Um, and again, um, you know, that, that type of technology is probably necessary to a certain degree for the military to use, um, but the military has to understand if it's working. The military has to understand if the decisions that the artificial intelligence makes are accurate and what goes into making those decisions. And again, I don't think, um, I think very, very, very few people, you know, using this technology in the military actually understand all that goes into it. Um, the other problem is, is that the artificial intelligence could make a mistake, and we wouldn't necessarily know that. There's no way of kind of of, of undoing the decision that's been made. And so, if AI somehow um, says that a drone strike should take place X, but really it meant Y, um, you know, we don't know that that mistake even happened. Now, uh, Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos met with uh, then Defense Secretary James Mattis in 2017. Has he made it and has Amazon really made it a secret um, uh, to, to, or have they tried to hide their relationship with the government and, and the angling for government contracts? I mean, I think it's not just Amazon in this case. I think that there's a, a systemic problem with all government contractors. Uh, they don't have to report their lobbying contacts. They don't have to report who they're talking to. Um, their their uh, contracts are often you know, um, protected with non-disclosure agreements. Um, and I think that's a systemic problem. I don't think that's necessarily just Amazon. I don't, certainly don't think Amazon's gone out of its way to, um, to announce its relationships or make them public. Um, but I think that we have a problem with the law and with disclosures. Um, look, lobbyists um, traditionally, when they go to the Hill to lobby for policy changes, 
have to report certain, um, you know, what they're doing and who their clients are, that kind of thing. Um, but these government contractors are under no similar obligation to to report who they're pitching to sell their information to. So the um, materials, the technologies that the government buys from these tech companies, does it undergo any side of uh, any uh, sort of audit? Are there any mechanisms in place for accountability? Because when you have government engaging in such technologies, there's supposed to be some sort of accountability. We have watchdog agencies, uh, watchdog offices within agencies, right? And, and in this case, are, are they following those same sorts of standards? We don't think so, um, but that's really the problem, right, is that um, we don't know all of the answers, but we do know that Congress, for instance, as I was saying before, is at a real uh, disadvantage when it comes to doing oversight mechanisms of these, or oversight of these technologies and of these companies. And the problem is these companies in these cases are acting sort of as proxy government agents. They're doing what the government should be doing. So again, in the case of, of ICE, um, it's private companies that are imprisoning uh, some of the immigrants who are trying to cross the border. It's private companies who are surveilling those immigrants. Um, that's really the government's job, you know, whether you think it's appropriate or not. If the government's going to engage in immigration enforcement, you know, that's that's their job. They should take responsibility for it. If they were doing it, we as citizens and anyone else um, could file a Freedom of Information Act request um, with ICE and say, you know, um, how many how many private prisons are there? How many staff are in the private prisons? How many prisoners are in the private prisons? That kind of thing. But if we file that same uh, Freedom of Information Act request now, ICE would turn around and say, we can't tell you because it's confidential information, um, because it's held by this private company. It's being performed by this private so company. So in a way, the government is relying on the privacy, you know, on the secrecy of a private company creating these technologies. The government's relying on it and the companies are relying on it too. They're relying on the fact that even though they are profiting and are acting again as these proxy government agents, um, they don't have the same responsibilities. So um, so they get all the benefit with none of the responsibilities. Right. Uh, the government pays them our tax dollars to surveil us effectively. Um, you also point out in your report how uh, unusually secretive this corporation is. Um, and it has, has showcased that secrecy in the search for their new headquarters, right? Right, um, I, and and again, the search for their headquarters um, was, you know, veiled in secrecy. Lots of non-disclosure agreements. Um, they really, when when Amazon was deciding to locate, ultimately, well, in New York and in Virginia, but now just in Virginia, um, you know, we didn't know what was being offered to Amazon. Um, other cities that were vying for Amazon's headquarters didn't know who they were up against, what kind of competition they were up against. And, you know, I guess that makes a lot of sense. If you're Amazon, if you're not telling somebody um, that, uh, you know, City X is offering you millions of dollars in, in benefits, um, you know, then you can kind of play off each other or play the cities off each other and get the best deal, um, the best, you know, deal for your for your bottom line if you're Amazon. Um, so they were very secretive in that um, in that hunt for the headquarters. Um, and, um, you know, again, we think that when taxpayer dollars are, in this case, being offered to lure a company into 
a particular city or a particular location, you know, we the taxpayers um, ought to know what that is. The other piece of yes, Amazon's, yeah, the other piece of Amazon's sort of um, decisions about its headquarters is we we have to. Uh, consider the fact that probably they chose this Northern Virginia location in part because it's so close to the federal government making, you know, their work with the federal government potentially that much easier um, and much, that much more convenient. So when they go, when they want to go to Capitol Hill or they want to go to the Defense Department to pitch their software, they're right there. And and you also point out that Amazon Web Services, which is the the sub company, I believe, that does the cloud services, is also located in or near Washington D.C. Right, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's convenient for them to be there, and that makes sense. Again, we would just like to know what went into all of the other, um, you know, the other offers, the other um, offers to bring Amazon into other cities, and you know, why did Amazon ultimately choose this these locations instead of you know, somewhere else. And we just don't know really all the details. If a company like Amazon is interested in or already doing um, a lot of business with the government, um, there should, of course, be um, scrutiny of this company. Are there laws in place to do that? I mean, presumably there are vetting procedures for private contractors that do business with the government. Right, and there are. and uh, you know, there's there's definitely databases full of um, you know potential contractor violations, health and safety violations, that sort of thing. So there there is a certain degree of due diligence that the government will do before they offer a contract um, to a particular company. I think the situation with Amazon is that they were already they're already so intertwined in the government with its cloud computing services, with its facial recognition software. Um, you know, they're at the CIA again. They're 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 they've got so many contracts already um, that they have this sort of unfair advantage. It's like they've been pre-vetted, and um, so they've got this this advantage that I think a lot of others uh, companies don't have. Um, Is it the sort so of too big to fail type of uh, logic? Sure, and there's a lot of comfort. Oh, you know, I know Amazon. I've been working with Amazon. Again, we. We all use Amazon, right, for our our um, kind of personal shopping, or most of us do. Um, so there's that comfort level to start with. But I think much more importantly is the fact that these government contractors are using their cloud computing services um, and some of their artificial intelligence. So so too big to fail. Uh, you know, a lot of comfort with the company company already. Um, yeah, and a lot of I think they've got a head start over a lot of their competitors, um, and I'm sure a lot of their competitors would say the same thing. How aggressively does Amazon lobby the government for these contracts? Um, and is it open air lobbying or secret lobbying? Well, that was that's what I'm saying. In terms yeah. of government contracts, there's no, it's not considered quote unquote lobbying um, in terms of the, the law. So, so if you wanted a sort of a, a push for a policy to be taken up as legislation in Congress, you would be called a formal lobbyist. But if you're just angling for business, you're not. Exactly. So, if, if I were to lobby for a change in um, in these in these laws uh, regarding uh, secrecy around government contractors, I would have to go and then you know register as a as a lobbyist. Um, but Amazon to sell all this information to the government really doesn't have to do that. Uh, the uh, you also point out that the CIA loves 
Amazon. The FBI is also involved. And it's not just ICE, right? So what are some of the things? Is it just the cloud computing um, uh, technology that, that they're relying on that they like about Amazon? Well, the CIA, we think, uses cloud computing. But again, um, people have um, made Freedom of Information Act requests to the CIA, and uh, they've not really been responded to. So yeah, we do know that there um, there have been uh, contracts to provide cloud computing. I think it was a $600 million contract to provide cloud computing to the CIA. Um, and then that, uh, but that's, we don't know a lot of details about that. Um, and again, the Department of Defense, the artificial intelligence, um, I think is, is that $10 billion contract that they're buying for um, kind of dwarfs everything else. Is there a relationship between Amazon and the U.S. government over unmanned drones? We know that the CIA uh, runs the, the the drone warfare program. Um, we also know that Amazon has uh, been playing with the idea of using unmanned drones, different kinds of drones, but still similar technology to deliver its packages to customers. Right. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, what I do know is that there is this concern um, that artificial intelligence is being used for drone strikes. Um, using the facial help. recognition technology? No, using artificial intelligence, a separate, a separate type of technology, uh, technology where um, you know, these algorithms, algorithms compile all of this data and say um, you know, that a certain, um, I don't know, oil field might be might be something that should be the target of a drone strike for the U.S. military, or that there's something that looks like it's the headquarters for a terrorist cell. I mean, I don't know. I'm speculating here, um, except the problem is, is that we know that Amazon, or that, excuse me, that artificial intelligence, that this, you know, this, this use of all of this data being compiled by computers to make a decision, to give an output, um, is being used to help the military make decisions on what to do. So it's not entirely unmanned. There are human in, human actors involved, um, but those human actors are using information that they are receiving um, through these different companies' artificial intelligence. People like Jeff Bezos like to think of themselves as utopian idealists who are lib socially liberal, and yet uh, don't have any problem working with administrations like, for example, the Trump administration, um, even though Trump has slammed Amazon for not paying taxes, for owning the Washington Post that does a lot of critical coverage of them, of him and his, his government. Do you feel that this is an important Thing to point out the sort of hypocrisy of some of these tech companies like even Facebook and Google whose CEOs like to think of themselves as you know furthering democracy but then are often seen as undermining democracy um, I think that that's an interesting question I think um, you know the hypocrisy runs both ways I, I mean I, I would be remiss if I pointed out that our president shouldn't really object to the non-payment of taxes um, since we've discovered right. guilty of that as well. Um, and, you know, his attacks on the free press um, are unprecedented. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I mean, we obviously have to um, credit the Washington Post and the reporting that they're doing. Absolutely. Um, whatever, whatever you may think of their owner, right? I mean, I think that that's something that I think is really important to say. Now, in terms of... Um, 
you know, all of these companies, you know, the, I would be hard pressed to find any company really in any, um, in any field um, that's going to turn down a $10 million contract, right? I mean, I just think, so yeah, maybe they're hypocritical, um, but they're, they're in it for the profits. Um, and I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that realistically, you know, for us to say, oh, Amazon should, should back away from this. I think that's, I don't think that's going to work. I don't think that's an effective thing to say to Amazon is like, give up $10 million. What I think is more important, what I think our focus should be on is, you know, what can we do to make sure if they are going to get that contract that it's working, that it's working right, um, you know, and, and that it's not treating people unfairly, it's not violating civil rights or civil liberties. Um, and I think that there are ways to do that. I think, you know, again, um, with just more requirements of transparency right up front. So we see the contracts, we see what's going into the more requirements that when they test this technology, we get access, or certainly at least Congress gets access to the results of their tests, their internal tests, so we know if it's working. Um, I think we need to beef up um, the staff on Capitol Hill so that you know these 85-year-old members of Congress who don't know what Facebook is at least have the staff who um, are technologists who can understand what artificial intelligence is and what goes into making these AI decisions. Um, so I think, you know, we can call out hypocrites or not, but I think what we really need to do is focus on solutions, um, and I think that those solutions are are there and they're possible. Um, and I think that's where we really need to we we need to focus. Now that said, I will say that the employees of these companies actually have a really strong voice, and we've seen it with Google, we've seen it with others. When the employees object to their um, employer's technology being sold or being used in a way that they think is violative of people's civil rights or where the company believes in, they have a really strong and powerful voice and they can change the decision of a company. So that's, um, I think, something that you know employees should understand. They're very, very powerful and they should take advantage of that as well. Well, Lisa, give out uh, the website for your organization where people can get the report directly. Sure, it's um, openthegovernment.org. And we link to that from our site. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. My guest has been Lisa Rosenberg, Executive Director of Open the Government, which just published the report that we've been discussing, Government Inc., Amazon, Government Security, and Secrecy. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Golhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter, subscribe to our audio podcast on iTunes, and our video channel on Vimeo. Uh-huh.